It's the 30th of March, 2018. This is a Room Now Week in Review. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week in the news, more good news and great insights into the world's hardest to diagnose condition, adult onset Stills disease. Did I tell you I was the world's expert in Stills disease? And I am so because no one will challenge me for the title. What about big data on life and death and lupus and gout? And lastly, the regulatory agencies are busy, busy, busy. At the top of the news, we have a new announcement from the FDA that they're going to convene an arthritis advisory committee on April 23rd to discuss the new, the new drug application of Lilly's drug, baricitinib, for use in moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis. Specifically, they're going to look at the efficacy and safety of this drug. They're going to look at the dosing and what's appropriate for an indication. They're going to look at two milligram, four milligram data and which will they decide on. And lastly, they're going to review the data on VTEs, venous thromboembolic events associated with this, this drug. And, or is it associated with this drug? Is it associated with rheumatoid arthritis or is it a class effect? That's all going to be discussed at that April 23rd hearing. The FDA has also granted uh, a new fast track uh, designation for nindatatinib. It's also called OLEF as a marketed drug. It's, a, it's a, uh, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's approved for use in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. This is a Beringer-Ingelheim drug that is actually being studied now in systemic sclerosis to see if it'll affect the outcomes of interstitial uh, lung disease in patients who have scleroderma. It's not yet an approved therapy. There's a big study that's going on, but giving it a fast-track designation will help this drug be approved should the trials go well. The Senesis trial is a, is a 52-week study of, of scleroderma and ILD. Uh, it's ongoing. I think it's fully enrolled. We'll hopefully see something about that in the next uh, year or two. Like, this drug seems to work quite well in, in, in halting or maybe uh, improving some of the outcomes in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. How it works is unclear. It is um, uh, a, a, a drug that inhibits the, the binding to VEGF receptor and fibroglass fibroglass growth factor receptor and also the, the uh, platelet-derived growth factor receptor. So it has multiplicity of effects um, as many kinases do. Uh, it'll look forward to seeing that kind of data. Uh, the EMA, EMA has its uh, uh, regulatory responsibilities and it actually recently rejected the application of a baloperatide um, uh, for use in postmenopausal osteoporosis. As you know, this drug has been approved in the United States by the FDA that happened in May of 2017. They've held off approval of this, citing some cardiac concerns and some concerns regarding uh, the data that was presented, including the data that said that uh, there was no change in non-vertebral fracture uh, prevention in postmenopausal women. So obviously this will spurn more discussion, maybe reanalysis uh, by the committee, the CHMP, uh, with new data being submitted by the uh, drug company. So we have data on infection in the news. Large study from the BSRBR looked at serious infection rates amongst a lot of biologics and showed, you know, generally they're all about the same. The, their overall rate in their large database of like 19,000 RA patients on biologics showed an SIE rate, serious infection event rate of 5.5 per 100 patient years. When I started comparing drugs, there were very few comparisons that seemed to stand out. One was that tocilizumab had a slightly higher rate of SIEs compared to etanercept with about a 22% higher rate, and that sertilizumab had a lower rate compared to etanercept. But on further analysis, it was actually equal to etanercept. But that's important because, as you know, 
uh, certolizumab in a um, in a Cochrane database analysis was said to have a much higher rate of SIEs compared to the other biologics. And that was sort of skewed data based on the results of one trial. Uh, this data, based on very real world data in large numbers of patients, says it's not any higher. And that's really my impression. I think the uh, SIE rates are about the same for almost all the biologics. Uh, any differences here and probably reflect how they're being used um, in, in different geographic locations. The TB rate has been reported again by the CDC. As you know, uh, TB events are a big concern in our patients who are taking biologics, mainly TNF inhibitors, not so much with non-TNF biologics, but although they have been reported in the case, but it's, it's sort of a log or two higher, the TNF inhibitors, and there's good reasons for that, good biologic reasons for that. But the background rate of TB is incredi incredibly low in the United States and other countries, developed countries like the United States. The new uh, event rate in the United States is 2.8 cases per 100,000 in the population. That's really, really low. By comparison, amongst non-US born individuals, the rate is 15 times higher. And when we start looking at you know, the rates that are seen in patients who are taking TNF inhibitors, you, know, you start to see data that's sort of like that. It's, it's 15 to, to you know, 10 to nine to 15 to even 30 times higher. But the idea is that the, the rate has actually gone down many years in a row now. Uh, so TB should not be a big issue in those individuals born in the United States who might be going on a biologic. A survey of, of, of spa patients in, in Denmark looked at the incidence of hydradenitis suppurativa in patients who had axial spondyloarthritis and found that uh, HS, hydradenitis suppurativa, was twice as common uh, in AXPA patients, 9.1 versus 4%, per and that those people who had both AXPA and complicated with hydrogenized suppurativa tend to be younger, um, tend to be female, tend to have higher disease activity scores as reflect, reflected by the ASBAS and BASDI, and they also had more dactylitis and enthesitis. A unique group, I don't know if you've seen many patients with HS, but they can be hard to treat. HS itself is hard to treat, uh, and the new approval of a, a TNF inhibitor for that, uh, adalimumab, and hopefully others would follow suit, uh, is a big advantage in managing those patients. Looking at hospitalizations in lupus is sort of an interesting exercise. A very large exercise of seven states, looking at almost 30,000 hospitalized lupus patients, comparing them to almost 13,000 controls, showed that lupus patients were more likely to have mortality uh, in the hospital and more likely to have uh, post-operative renal complications. Now we know lupus patients are complicated and they can be hard to manage and lupus patients who go into the hospital, uh, that's a bad mix, especially if their lupus is active. But they did not have a higher rate of cardiac complications and I think it sort of underscores the need to control your lupus patients and for those lupus patients who are uncontrolled who go into the hospital, that can be a bad mix. I've always said that a lupus patient who goes into the hospital is usually going in for a medical reason and is going to have problems for medical reason like a heart attack, a pneumonia, uncontrolled hypertension, et cetera. But a lupus patient goes in for a CNS reason, more likely to have lupus cerebritis. The bottom line though is, I think a lot like pregnancy, if the lupus is not well controlled, the outcome in hospitalization is not gonna be very good. A study of gout patients looked at their outcomes, looking at a large cohort in the UK. And this is a very interesting study because it looked at gout patients who are taking statins. And what is the effect of statin on outcomes in gout? Well, it doesn't seem to have much an effect on gout attacks, but it does have a significant effect on gout survival and all-cause mortality. All-cause mortality was actually 16% lower when they were on statins. 
and that they had roughly uh, almost eight fewer deaths per 1,000 patient years that patients were treated. So these findings are actually uh, even more so in patients who had uh, no prior cardiovascular disease, suggesting again that, that um, you know, maybe there's this interplay between hyperlipidemia and other elements of the, um, the metabolic syndrome. And in fact, I, I really would consider based on all the data that's accrued in the last 10 years, that gout really should be a part of the metabolic syndrome. It's sort of like the fifth beetle. And you figure out who the fifth beetle is. There's, I actually have a Twitter poll on that. Um, but it's not Pete Best, I'll tell you that. Anyway, um, gout should be the fifth beetle, should be part of the metabolic syndrome. And I think we should take it seriously in that regard. It has a lot of baggage and a lot of comorbidity associated with it. Two new reports on Stills disease, my favorite disorder, IL-37 is a potential biomarker in Stills disease. I did not, not, not know much about IL-37 until I saw this report. It actually is a, an anti-inflammatory cytokine that regulates a lot of uh, other cytokines and mainly it also inhibits IL-18 activity. As you know, um, with unregulated uh, caspase activity, there is an excessive production of IL-1 and IL-18. That leads to an increase in IL-6, those being the three key cytokines associated with Stills disease. But an analysis of, uh, I think, a large number, 80 patients or something like that, showed that the IL-18, uh, sorry, IL-37 correlated very well with systemic activity with IL-1 beta, IL-18, IL-10, and, and other cytokines. Um, so the idea is that maybe this could be another one, or mainly this is epiphenomenal. Maybe stills patients who have so much inflammation, IL-6 and IL-1, uh, uh, that that IL-37 and IL-10 are being produced to down-regulate the, the extreme elevations that are driving the inflammatory features of this, this disease. More research is needed, but it's nice to have an interesting new biologic um, marker. Um, Anakinra, an IL-1 inhibitor, has actually been studied in disorders outside of systemic JIA and Stills disease. It's been studied, as you know, in cardiac disease in patients who are at high risk for cardiac events where in the Canto study, it was shown to actually lower cardiovascular event rates and even lower um, cancer rates, especially lung cancer. But it's also been studied in patients who have um, uh, eye disease, inflammatory eye disease, uh, et cetera. But the, this new study showed anakinra given to 80 patients who had acute um, stroke uh, showed some interesting outcomes. And the idea here was that maybe it would reduce the the post-stroke inflammatory changes that may contribute to the pathogenesis. Patients who have bad outcomes in stroke often do have very high levels of um, IL-6 and CRP and other inflammatory markers. So the idea here was that patients came in, they were treated with or without antithrombolytic therapy, and then they were either given placebo or given three days of anakinra, 100 milligrams BID. In the short term, the anakinra led to significant reductions in cytokine levels, which was very, very promising. However, in the long term, which was in this case 30 days, which is 27 days after the last dose of anakinra, there was a trend towards improvement in stroke outcomes measured by their composite index, but it was not significant. One can only wonder that if they had given this for the whole month, whether they might have actually seen uh, better results. A very interesting re report uh, appears in the Journal of Translational Medicine that was published today, or yesterday, excuse me. Uh, this comes from Glasgow and Oxford, Ian McGuinness's um, colleagues, where they actually looked at um, precision, precision genetics in, in, 
in an effort to predict methotrexate responsiveness in a cohort of early RA patients. Specifically, what they did was they took a cohort of patients who had early RA from their um, CIRA study, uh, and they tried to find out whether or not that there were chromosomal conformational changes that could be used. Now, this CCS, chromosomal conformational signature, is something that, that um, happens with, as a result of epigenetic or environmental changes uh, in gene activity and, and how these genes sort of pair up. They looked at a number of different gene pairings and tried to find those that may be predictive of, of rheumatoid activity and disease responsiveness. And they came up actually with a signature that involved five different genetic markers, uh, including interferon, IL-21 receptor, uh, IL-23, the chemokine CXCL13, and IL-17A. And it is, it is this signature that was able to predict patients who would not respond to methotrexate. So these are early RA patients. They studied 59 of them. Half of them went on methotrexate. Actually, they all went on methotrexate. Half responded. The other half did not. And they found that it was that, that the signature uh, identifying, again, uh, a conformational change in, in gene activity um, was predictive with an AUC of 0.90, or it was 90% predictive of those who would not respond. Uh, this is one of the few really good uh, studies showing that you can predict responses um, at baseline, even before you give the drug. So it'd be nice to see this in much larger numbers. Again, they, they developed this in eight or nine patients. They, they showed the data in 59 patients, and then they confirmed the data in another cohort of 19 patients. But you need large-scale uh, data. But this is a, the analysis and the way it's done is fairly cheap. Um, could be done on minimal amounts of blood. Uh, this could be commercially available. This would be exciting, uh, and it would be nice to know if you have an early RA patient, whether or not you should give them methotrexate. Their data, which is really what most people don't really quote, is that somewhere between 30 and 60% of patients respond to methotrexate right out of the gate. It's not as great as we all think it is. It's still a very good drug, but that's the real data on real good responses. And so it'd be nice to, have, to skew the data in favor of the patient, in favor of a drug response. Um, there's two more studies that I want to talk about. One is being off of methotrexate um, for getting, when you get the flu vaccine. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, as you know, at the ACR meeting, Park and colleagues presented a plenary session where they outlined their preliminary studies and, and their particular study where they chose to either continue methotrexate and give the influenza vaccine or uh, at the time the patient came in, give the influenza vaccine, stay off of methotrexate for two weeks. What they showed was that those who stayed off of methotrexate for two weeks had about 25% greater response. It was something like 50 versus 75% um, seroconversions on influenza after influenza vaccination, suggesting this is one, the right thing to do, and two, it's a safe thing to do because those who held their methotrexate for two weeks did not have uh, an um, increase in disease activity. Again, this is the, the same as the report from the ACR, which we covered before. What's nice about this now is that it's, it's in print. It's in uh, Annals of Rheumatic Disease. It was published uh, by MedPage today on their website and also on our website. And lastly, we have the results of uh, the field study. The field study is actually a study of phenofibrate use in diabetics um, at risk of developing gout. These patients did not have gout. A large number of them were given phenofibrate or not and they were followed for up to five years. We do know that phenofibrate can lower 
serum uric acid levels by as much as 20%. The question is whether or not that those results would be sustained or if phenofibrate is given to patients who may be at risk, would it prevent the actual results of gout? And in this study, what happened was in both short-term and long-term, phenofibrate did lower uric acid levels by 20%. In patients who did not have gout, it lowered the rates of new incident gout by 50%. Again, it was 3% who were um, not on phenofibrate and 2%. Uh, so it's a very low number for those who were on phenofibrate, but still a 50% reduction. Um, and, and by and large, it may be a useful way of actually preventing gout. So phenofibrate is good adjunctive therapy in those who may be at risk. And, and again, the real issue is would phenofibrate work on top of urate lowering therapy? The existing research, not necessarily with phenofibrate, but with other drugs that have this ability shows that it doesn't actually have the same lowering effect when someone's already on a urate-lowering drug like Fabuxostat or allopurinol. But for those that are not on this, this could be a nice addition. That's it for this week at uh, Room Now and the Week in Review. You can go to the website and find these links and read more about these very interesting articles. I'll make a last-minute pitch. What if you had the focused attention of hundreds, if not thousands, of your peers, and you had something to say? Room Now is a good place to say it. We're looking for good blogs and good perspective pieces. If you're a good writer, write something, submit it. If it's good, we'll publish it. If it's not, we'll throw it away. See you next week.